Hey, good morning. Hey, good morning. Hey, to you guys who are visitors this morning, we welcome you to uh, the Driven Church. And uh, you have entered into uh, uh, the life of the church at the time which we find ourselves closing uh, out a study in the book of Exodus. But, uh, uh, and, but we've been daring to travel through all of Genesis and travel through all of Exodus. As a matter of fact, I was trying to calculate exactly how many weeks we have spent or we'll spend by the time we get through the end of Exodus, we're going to end up spending around 130, 135 weeks just getting through the first two books of the Bible, right? Because we want to just try to work through the Scripture. We don't want to duck and hide the Scripture. We want to deal with the difficult things as well as those things that seem somewhat simple. Um, and there's no, there's no hiding. Sometimes you just have to dare, you know, and just jump out there, man. This morning, Clark and I got in the car, and I started the car up, and being who I am, the procrastinator that I am, I look down at the, the gas hand, and I get the alarm from my car, and, and it says 36 miles. Clark said, Dad, we're going to stop and get gas. I said, no. I said, we've, we've got, I said, the church is only 25 miles. I said, we've got plenty, we've got to dare to believe this gas will get us there. And we rode into the parking lot, and I went to drive them off. I said, Clark, we got 10 miles to spare. And then I gave him my car, and I said, go fill it up with gas. As he was picking up breakfast, right? But sometimes we just have to dare to kind of deal with, with some difficult things in the Scripture and whatnot. And so where we find ourselves at this morning is last week, you know, we were, we were uh, actually in chapter 37, rolling into chapter 38, and we were dealing with the furniture in the tabernacle. And I know what you're thinking. If you're a visitor here this morning, you're thinking, man, I walked into this church on the wrong Sunday, right? Man, I was looking for something else. We're talking about, you know, holy furniture this morning. But last week, if you guys were here, you know what we did was we uh, had, had taken the Scripture. We looked at the Scripture because what had happened was the people had been instructed by God on how to build this furniture in chapters 25 through roughly chapter 30. And then in chapter uh, 37 and portion of 38, they actually construct. So they went from instruction to construction. They went from hearers to doers, right? We touched on that last week. You know, that, and that's kind of the call of us. Uh, as followers of Jesus, to go from just hearers and be doers, right? And, and so last week, we looked at the erecting of the tabernacle. And there were a couple of things, man, that we, that we looked at. And you guys know we, we showed some 3D uh, animation uh, so I wouldn't just bore you in reading through the directions of the construction. But instead, I wanted you to visually see what was happening. And so we will follow through with that suit this week as we look at the four last pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. Last week, we, we, we talked about uh, three primary things. And it's important because we're actually going in an order that we're entering into the tabernacle. So I wanted you in your mind and your spirit to perceive an entrance into the tabernacle. And so we dealt with the, the uh, description of the tabernacle in accordance to what that would look like for you and for me. And so what we're doing as we study this scripture, we're not reading out of chapter 37 and 38 because we're actually pulling from Scripture that corresponds with their construction, and we're going to be looking at the Scripture of instruction. 
So what we know in 37 and 38, they do what they were told in the instructions. So I want you to know what the instructions was, and we'll see how that plays out, okay? So visually, this morning I want you to understand, as we do a quick review of the three things, last week we entered in to the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was 150 feet long on both sides, 75 feet across, 22 and a half feet at the front. You had a curtain here and you had a, or a wall here and you had a, another curtain that was 22 and a half feet on this side. And then you had a gate that was 30 feet wide. Now, last week when we talked about the, the, the gate and these other articles, we drew the correlation between these articles and Jesus. When we leave here, there will be no doubt in your mind that the tabernacle and the, the construction of it, the articles in it, every one of those are, a, are like a, a topography or a, a typography of Jesus. You literally, and I said this last week, you can smell Jesus in the tabernacle. You can sense Jesus in the tabernacle. You almost hear the reverberations of the echo of the gospel when you read about the construction of the tabernacle and vice versa. When you, when you see the life of Jesus, you see it in, in the framework of what God had established for the people. The very first thing we covered last week was the outward walls, right? And the gate and the outward walls represented the fact that we've all been shut off from God. Sin has a way of doing that. But there was a gate that was established by which we could gain access to God. And Jesus referenced himself as the gate. He said, I am the gate. Now, Jesus, one of the beautiful things about this gate that Jesus represents is in the construction of the tabernacle, the gate always had to be on the eastern side of the tabernacle. So no matter where they moved or where the tabernacle was established, the gate was always on the eastward side. So for them to enter into the gate or enter into the presence of God, it would require them then to go west. We explained why that was. When God drove them out of the garden, he drove them out, right? And then put two cherubim, flaming swords, right? Angels, right? Guarding the eastern gate of the garden. Meaning the people were driven eastward to return to God. They had to do an about face, turn back to the eastern gate and go westward. So in the tabernacle, whenever they would enter the gate and begin to approach God to come back into fellowship with God, it was required of them to go westward. You're returning back to God. You see that? You see the symbolism. The second thing, that as soon as you walked in through that gate, the first thing you seen was the altar of burnt offerings. And the altar of burnt offerings being the very first thing you saw brought recognition and, and affirming the reality that you and I need to be forgiven it's there for a purpose. What is the purpose of it? It was, per, it was there by design by God for the consumption of the sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of the people. Right? That was, that was, that's what was taking place right there. And the blood was, was put on the horns and, and, I, and I covered those things. And so the moment you come in and you see that one of the things, man, you've just got to deal with is the reality in approaching God is that the, the level of, of depravity or the deficiency within our spiritual beings is forefront. It's right there. You have to acknowledge it right off the bat. If I'm going to come to God, I first must acknowledge the need for a sacrifice in my place to redeem me. 
to move any further. First thing. And then the last or the second thing that we covered prior to entering into the, the inner sanctum or the inner chambers of the tabernacle was the water basin, the basin for washing. And I covered this with you guys. And, and I said the, the, the water basin, the wash basin, was actually made out of the women's, and it says this in Exodus chapter 38, the women's of Israel who serviced the outer gates of the tabernacle, who served there, their bronze mirrors is what was used to construct the water basin. We all know what a mirror is for, right? It's for a reflection. You want to see a reflection. So every time your sacrifices, the sacrifice was, was taking place, then the priest, before going any further in the process, they would have to look into this wash basin, which was made of, of, of reflective materials, and the reality is when we look into anything of reflective materials, the thing that we're going to see is a true and objective reflection of ourselves, right? And that material would have provided that very thing. And you and I too represented in Jesus. We don't compare ourselves to one another, but we compare ourselves to Jesus. When we look into that water basin, when we look into Jesus, the reflection that we see back at us, that being our true selves, dictate that the contents of the water basin then be utilized. And the water was there to cleanse, to purify the priest. They would literally take the... So, so the mirror wasn't there just to condemn you and to show you your failures, your shortcomings. The mirrors in the water basin was to show you your need for purification. But along with the mirrors to show you the need was the water provided for the purification. God's not just condemning you. He's showing you the answer to what your need is. And so what they do, they would take this water and they would wash their hands. And they would wash their feet. And then they would proceed into that inner sanctum or that inner sanctuary. Now I'm going to give you a picture of this really quick. And then we're actually going to see it. When you walk into the inner sanctum, the inner sanctuary. On the left, you would find the lampstand. On the right, you would find uh, the table of showbread or the table of presents. And in the back of that uh, first room, what is called the holy place, was the altar of burnt incense. And behind that was another veil. Another veil. Another curtain. Rabbinical tradition refers to that curtain as the curtain of life. And behind that curtain of life resided, resided the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this. We're going to see it. You're going to see it. I'm going to see it. I'm going to read it. Okay? Are you guys with me? You're tracking with me? Those of you that were here last week, you're like, okay, Trey, I know where you're going. Those of you who are visitors this morning, you have no clue. You're like, I don't know what he's doing. But what we're going to we're going to literally go through this in what I think would be the perceived order. We're going to deal with the lampstand, then we're going to deal with the table of showbread, then we're going to deal with the altar of incense, then we're going to deal with the ark. And we're going to draw some correlations between all of these instruments and the person of Jesus. And when you come out here today, Jack, you're going to come out of here understanding, understanding the rhythm of the scripture the tapestry of the scripture and the message of God remaining the same. All those Old Testament questions 
that we all have answers in Jesus. So let's pray. And you're like, Trent, we're just now praying, getting ready for the sermon. You've been talking for 15 minutes. Yes, we're just praying now to get ready. So Father, in Jesus' name, I pray this morning that you would take my efforts, whatever they may be, that you would use them to speak to your sons and your daughters. May it challenge us in our hearts and our spirits and our minds and our walk. Oh, God, may we see you even more clear than we've ever seen you before. Speak to every person that is in this sanctuary this morning. Reveal yourself to them. Oh, God, we cry out and we need your guidance, your help, your spirit, your power, your leading, all of these things. We need you to make this place a holy place, a holy place by, by which your, your words can, can be communicated with accuracy untarnished by the frailties of men. And so Lord, we bless you. We bless the sons and daughters of God this morning. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hold on just a second. We're going to read. Now listen, before he even starts, before he even starts, we're actually going to be reading out of Exodus chapter 25, verse 31 through 40. If you want to turn there. You're welcome to do so. This is the corresponding scripture with Exodus 37, 17, 17 through 24. I need a drink before I read, Jay, so I, I don't go dry on you, brother. Mm. Exodus 25. The lampstand. Let's address that. Make a, make a lampstand of pure hammered gold. Make the entire lampstand and its decorations of one piece. The base, the center stem, lamp cups, buds, and petals. Make it with six branches going out from the center stem, three on each side. Each of the six branches will have three lamp cups shaped like almond blossoms and complete with buds and petals. Craft the center stem of the lampstand with four lamp cups shaped like almond blossoms complete with buds and petals. There will also be an almond bud beneath each pair of branches where the six branches extend from the center stem. The almond buds and branches must all be of one piece with the center stem and they must be hammered from pure gold. Then make the seven lamps for the lampstand and set them so they reflect their light forward. The lamp snuffers and trays must also be made of pure gold. You will need 75 pounds of pure gold for the lampstands and its accessories. And he closes by saying, be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's look at some things. Let's look at some things regarding the lampstand. I want you to get this. I want you to get this. Now, when we read that scripture, some of you guys are reading out of given translations that may have measurements of cubits. How many of you have translations that has that in cubits? Instead of 150 feet, it's, it might say 100 cubits, right? Some of you may have that. I'm reading, this is to your benefit, out of a translation that will render that into a standard measurement so you'll have a place of reference. Now I could explain to you 
Each week or every time we do this, that a cubit is roughly 18 inches, what was considered from the elbow to the fingertip. But what I don't want you to do is every time I read a measurement, you pull out your phone and a calculator, and you're out there trying to calculate what the distance is. A hundred cubit doesn't mean as much to you as 150 feet means to you. So that is the reason we are reading out of that. Now listen, we're entering into the, mo the, the holy place. And when you enter into this holy place, on the left of the holy place is this lampstand. You say, Trent, why are we dealing with the lampstand first? Why not go to the, sh the table of showbread? I'm going to tell you why we're going to deal with the lampstand first. Because without the lampstand, you don't see the table of showbread nor the altar of incense. Because within the, the, the context of that sanctum in that first room and in the entire uh, inner sanctum, there is only one source of light. There is only one source of light. And the one source of light is the lamp stand. Jesus says, listen to this, and he says this in the midst of the Pharisees disputing and accusing him of many things. In John chapter 7 is where the accusations are coming. But in John chapter 8, Jesus says something in reference to the light which the candlesticks represent. In John chapter 8, verse 12, this is what Jesus says. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The thing you and I must understand is Jesus never says he's a light of the world. Jesus says just like the lampstand is the singular source of light within that, that holy place, Jesus establishes right off the bat there in John, he is the singular source of spiritual light. Regardless of what any other claims are made by any other man, Jesus says himself, I am the light of the world, right? The light of the world. But that's not the only connection that Jesus and the lampstand have in, in, in themselves. One of the beautiful things about the lampstand, and if you read it or if you heard it in the scripture that I just read, was the fact that the lampstand was hammered out of one singular piece of material, pure gold. Only one singular piece of material was this lampstand created and hammered into existence, basically. It was created out of one piece, hammered, is what the scripture says. It says, and they made the lampstand of pure gold. They hammered out its base and shaft and made its flower-like cups, buds and blossoms of one piece with them. I can't help but to make the correlation with the words of Isaiah, right? In chapter 53, verse 5, because this idea in my mind, this hammering of this one piece kind of connects to Isaiah when he says, but he was pierced. For our transgression, not many people were pierced, but the singular person, being he the Messiah, the Christ, that being Jesus, he was pierced, right? For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. It says he was crushed, punished, wounded. May I make a stretch and say to you that Jesus was literally and figuratively hammered 
to the cross. The light of the world, the singular light of the world, that being Jesus, literally singular, one man, not only did those things that Isaiah, he was literally hammered. That one object of God's affections was hammered onto a cross, which had a base, which had arms. And Jesus said so beautifully, and that was going, if I be lifted up, and you can see it happening on the cross. He be the light. I would draw all men unto myself. Right. But not only that, for you and me, as followers of this Jesus, right? The Christ, right? There's something really beautiful about this lampstand. The lights of the lampstand were to never go out. Did y'all know that? Never to go out. Which required. Every day. Did you notice the tools in the video? There's tools at the bottom. Part of the tools is a wick trimmer to cut off the, the burned wick, the residue, the excess, what's been used up. Every day, Aaron, the priest, serviced the lampstand. And in service in the lampstand, every single day, the dead wick that had been consumed was trimmed off. And the oil in the, in, in, in the buzz, the oil in, 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 in the lampstands were refilled every singular day. The scripture says, in the tent of meeting outside the curtains that shields the Ark of the Covenant law, Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening till morning. This was happening constantly, which required of them a daily task of managing the light, the wick, and the oil. You and I, as followers of Jesus, let me say and suggest this to you and for me, that though he is the light of the world, there is a responsibility upon us to daily, not just die out, but to daily assess our lives, daily cut away the, the, the excess or the waste or what's been burned up, to daily ask God to have that all of God's anointing and the all of, of, of God's fire and God's light to refill us, none of us can go day after day without having the maintenance of the lampstand being done in our own hearts, in our own lives. You get that, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 says this. Paul says this. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly, Though we're hourly wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. He doesn't say week by week, month by month, year by year. Paul says, though our outward man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed every single day. You think coming on Sundays is enough for renewing you? 
Do you think you're going to get enough oil? You're going to get enough of that burned wick? Remove the excess, the, 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 the waste removed by coming here on a given Sunday morning. I'm telling you, man, I encourage you, my brothers and sisters, to understand there is a necessity for you and for me to engage in literal spiritual maintenance. I say to you, preventive, PM, preventive maintenance that's being done, required of us each and every day. And I say to you, if you don't, and we haven't done that, and when I say we, I'm including me, so you'll understand, I'm subject to my very own, the very own words that I preach. You and I both know, Kevin, Jay, Craig, Jeremiah, Ronnie, Greg, West, Danny, Gabe, Ben, and you're like, why are you condemning all my brothers? I'm going to throw Aaron in there. I'm going to throw Hunter, my visitor, in there. We know what it's like when we've not trimmed the wicks. We know what it's like when the oil hadn't been refilled. And man, we're running on empty. The light's flickering. And the world in which we live is ever going darker and the light is flickering, that ought not to be the case. But I too have to, you, I have to manage the PMs of Trent Evans' life. The wick trimmers only have one set. And it's for mine. I can't trim your wicks. I can't refill your oil. It is something that each of us as individuals must take upon ourselves to maintain this light that God has placed in us. As children, as the scriptures say, as children of the light, right? You say, okay, come on, man. Let's get moving through the furniture store. What's next? Well, let's look at some scripture. In Exodus 25, verse 23 and 30, in Exodus 30, corresponding verses is Exodus 37, 10 and 16. And we're going to look at the table of showbread. Go ahead, Clark, if you would, please. Then make a table of acacia wood. 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold and run a gold molding around the edge. Decorate it with three-inch border all around and run a gold molding along the border. Make four gold rings for the table and attach them at the four corners next to the four legs. Attach the rings near the border to hold the poles that are used to carry the table. Make these poles from acacia wood no relay them with gold. Make special containers of pure gold for the table, bowls, ladles, pitchers, and jars to be used in the pouring out of liquid offerings. Place the bread of the presence on the table to remain before me at all times. At all times. At all times. Now let's just look at this table, the, the bread of presence. Okay? Let's look at this. On this table of, of presence are 12 loaves. You know what those 12 loaves represent? They represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 sons of Jacob, right? That's what they represent. But the 12 loaves of bread represent something else besides that. It represents the provision of God for 
the 12 tribes. The bread was a substance of life. This was the provision of God. And it, 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 it represented that very thing. God is, God always will be, your provision and my provision. One of the beautiful things about this table of presence, one of the beautiful things about it is that God says this. This is what he says. The table of presence, the 12 loaves are to be before me at all times. His provision recognized by their need. Without a need, a provision can't be provided, right? The fact that provision is there dictates, dictates and addresses that a need existed that God met. And it's before God at all times. Do you know, and I say this to encourage you, damn, do you know that you are before God at all times? Do you know whatever your needs are, whatever, uh, whatever gap there is in your life is before God at all times? Did you know that God said, I want it before me at all times? I want it before me at all times. This is what the scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's what it says. It literally says that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are tipped. He is aware of what your needs are and he is a provider, a desire to meet your needs. But it goes even further than that. It goes even beyond that. Because the bread represented within Jewish culture. Listen, we've studied all this, man. I mean, we've got Sunday school teachers teaching this one. We know what the bread represents. We understand the Jewish culture and, 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 and the impact that it has. Whenever you welcome someone into your home and you broke bread with that individual, there was something being said in the breaking of the bread, and it would be this, that that individual breaking bread in your house in that moment and that time is as much as your family as anyone. Not only are they breaking bread in your house and it represents you providing for them, but there's another element to that that is represented in the breaking of the bread, and that is this, that as long as you're in their house breaking their bread, you are under their protection as well as their provision. It's the exact same thing. So each person in the breaking of bread within the Jewish culture, the one who provides it and breaks it and eats, when the other person eats of the bread, it is their way of saying, we are in this. We are connected. We are one in this. We are family. Now, there's something really beautiful because on the bread of presence, there's frankincense. And the frankincense is ultimately taken to the altar of incense. And that is God's part of consuming from the table of presence. That is God's way of saying, I'm eating this too. Listen, when we begin to understand that God established all this, Jay, to bring us back, it's not so difficult to see these elements at play when we start to look at these things. It starts to become pretty obvious what God's intentions are. And it's ultimately to bring us back to himself. And Jesus says something so beautifully, so we would not miss this. Jesus referenced himself once again in relations to the tabernacle. Jesus says this, 
In chapter 6 of John, he says, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He doesn't stop there. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. Do you know what Jesus is saying? Eat with me. Right? You see that, right? Partake with me. And wherever you take of me, that place becomes a holy place. You are then in my residence, regardless of where that place is. You're in my protection and my provision. Oh, the hearer of these words, and most of them being Pharisees. Every time he made these statements, it rubbed them the wrong way. When he made the, de the declaration, I'm not once again a piece of the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. That's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus. So now we have the, the lamp set. We have the, the table of presence. And we've just made a few connections. Now you say, Trent, there's so much more you could, you could elaborate on. Are you kidding me? Listen, we could sit here on this thing for six weeks. You don't want that. Do you? <laughs> Probably not. I want you to see the image of Jesus. I want you to make some connections. And then you go home, man. You open this stuff up, man. You start studying. You start reading. You start dissecting it. Man, you start cutting away layer after layer. And the thing that I've introduced you to, this door that I've opened for you, man, it goes into many rooms. That's for you to discover. Then, I, then Jesus, I am the bread of life. And then in Exodus chapter 30, verse 1 through 6, we're, we're progressing through the small room. There's only one more piece, uh, article of furniture in here, Michael. There's only one more article, and it's the altar of incense. And it's in Exodus chapter 30, verse 1 through 6, corresponding verses, Exodus 37, 25 through 29. This is what it says. Go ahead, Clark. Exodus 31 through 6. Then make another altar of acacia wood for burnt incense. This is the second altar. It's square too. Make it 18 inches square and 36 inches high with horns at the corners, which you will see. Carved from the same piece of wood as the altar itself. Overlay the top sides and horns of the altar with pure gold and run a gold molding around the entire altar. Make two gold rings and attach them on opposite sides of the altar below the gold molding to hold the carrying poles. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Place the incense altar just outside the inner curtain of the shields of the Ark of the Covenant in front of the Ark's cover, the place of the atonement that covers the tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. And the Lord says this, and I will meet you there. And I will meet you there. And you say, okay, what, what, where is Jesus in this altar, in this square box? Where's Jesus at? I want to make, I want, I want to make some connections for you. And we're going to try to finish this as quickly as I can without compromising the content of what we're sharing today. All right? The altar of incense, 
much like the lampstand that never has the lamps go the altar of incense would have the incense burning non-stop. And you say, well, what is the significance of that? What is the significance of that? The burning incense represented, now I want you to get this, represented the prayers of God's people. It represented the prayers of God. That God said that I want it burning 24-7. You got that? What then is, the, is, is that saying to you and I regarding the prayers of the people of Israel? It says less about them and more about the availability of God to hear their prayers. Do you not see the connection? God is literally saying in that, not just to have them there to be there, have them there because I'm there. He said, I will meet you there. Do you not see this? He said, I'm available 24-7. I'm available when your children are in car wrecks and your insurance rates are going up, Clark. And many of you know what I'm referencing. God is there when the travails of life and the difficulties, when relationships are in struggle. You don't have to make an appointment with God to have access to God. God is saying literally, I want it all the time. I want your prayer. So when the scripture says to pray without ceasing, you can understand the application, right? Well, is God hearing me? The scripture would imply absolutely so, Dwayne. He is hearing you at all times. But there's something really, really sweet about this that's kind of hidden. It's kind of hidden. But let me read this verse to reiterate what I just said. In Psalms 141, verse 2, May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like an evening sacrifice. Right? Now, there are a couple things that are connected here between this altar of incense and the altar of sacrifice. Did you know this? Both are square. They're the only two articles that are square. Both have horns, right? Both are covered with a similar, made out of acacia wood. One is covered with copper. One is covered with gold. But you know what the real connection is? Do you know what the real connection is? Did you know that the first burnt offering, when the temple was actually open for service, if you'll allow me to use that term, do you know who lit the fire under the altar of sacrifice? You think it was Aaron? It wasn't Aaron who lit the fire. You know who lit the fire? God lit the fire. God lit the fire. Do you know what burns the incense on the on the the uh, altar of incense, the scripture says the hot coals from the fire that God lit is what energizes and burns and creates the aroma of the burning incense of the prayers of the people. God was the source of the fire. God was the source of the coals. God is the very, the very, if you'll allow me the Greek, energio again, the very energy behind the burning of the incense. Literally, he is saying that I will be the energy behind your prayers that I want to hear. I don't know what to do about that, Amy. 
What God is saying, I'll provide the coal. I'll provide the fire. Just give me your heart and give me your prayers. And I'll make something in, out of that that is a beautiful aroma to me. And I will desire. I will make what you give to me valuable to me. Right? You see, can you see this? Oh, Trent, you're nutty. Yes. Today is my 29th anniversary. Carrie's known this for 29 years. And I'm a little bit on this side. But the scripture, the message, oh, oh, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. Leviticus 16, verse 12 and 13 is where it describes that. It says, He is to take a censer full of burnt coals from the altar before the Lord and the two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. That's the first. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. He literally is doing this for us if we would make ourselves available to him. In Leviticus 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, it says, And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw this, when all the people saw the act of God setting the altar on fire, the altar that would represent their sins, right? And they seen God consuming this. In their hearts and in their minds, it was God acknowledging that he had received the payment of atonement on their behalf. And you know what the people of Israel did when they saw that? The scripture says when all the people saw that, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Now can you imagine this thing's being constructed? The first altar, the first sacrifice is being done. And they're waiting for the response of God. And the fire comes and it consumes it. No wonder they shouted. No wonder they fell on their face in worship. Oh, you remember, don't you, that first time? The first time Jesus approached you and drew you in. And man, you were carrying the guilt and the shame. And you didn't know, man, if this gospel was for you or not. Man, you didn't know if you had been too far, gone too deep, done too much, that even Jesus couldn't forgive you. You remember that, don't you? And then you experienced him. And everything in you, whether it was ever articulated in a physical response, everything in you been wanted to shout. Everything in you, in you wanted to fall down. When the anticipated rejection of a, of a Jesus of the Bible becomes a reality of embracing and acceptance and forgiveness, it moves all of us to shout and worship. And the people of Israel have done the same. And it was from that acceptance that their prayers burned. The incense burned. They said, we've been accepted. We shouted. We worshiped. We prayed. <laughs> Second Corinthians. Let me just read this and we'll get into the holy holies. Okay, let me read this first. 
2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. This is the Apostle Paul. Hey, Paul's a good dude, man. He knew about this stuff. He was a Pharisee, a Pharisee. That's what the scripture says. But he says this about you and me. He says this of Lisa Hall. He says this of Trent Evans. He says of Kathy Stinson. I'm looking around. I'm trying to find you. He said it's Marissa. Of joy. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. <laughs> Among those who are being saved. What it's saying is in Christ, it's the fire that sets the coals ablaze, that creates in us a response to God of prayer that Paul says is a sweet aroma. Oh, I want you to see it. Kevin, when you're on your deathbed, and the cries of your brothers and sisters on your behalf are reaching a God who desires to hear them. He says to those of us who cry out on your behalf, it is a sweet aroma because you're in Christ. Bring it. Bring it. Bring it. Right? Don't ever... Don't ever lose heart in praying. He wants it. He wants it. Okay, let's let's move on. Now we're getting into the nitty-gritty. Man, we're about to enter into that holy place. And let me say this. Rabbinical tradition would refer to this curtain that separates uh, the holy place from the holy of holies as a veil or curtain of life. That's what that would be referred to. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read this, okay? We're going to read this. And we're going to be reading out of Exodus 25, 10 through 22. And this is the last scripture. You know, this is the last piece of furniture, man. Exodus 37, 1 through 9 is the corresponding scripture. Now hang with me on this because we're building the Ark of the Covenant. Clark, hold on. I need to prime the well a bit. Bear with me, Jay. Bear with me. If you would. And the scripture says, Have the people make an ark of acacia wood, a sacred chest 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it inside and out with pure gold and run a molding of gold all around it. Cast four gold rings and attach them to its four feet, two rings on each side. Make poles from acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you'll see this. Insert the poles into the rings at the sides of the ark to carry it. These carrying poles must stay inside the rings, never remove them. When the ark is finished, place inside it the stone tablets. Now you will see the other articles which will later be placed in there. Tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant which I will give to you. Then make the ark's cover, the place of atonement from pure gold. It must be 45 inches long and 27 inches wide. Then make two cherubim from hammered gold and place them on the two ends of the atonement cover. Mold the cherubim on each end of the atonement cover, making it all one piece of gold. The cherubim will face each other and look down on the atonement cover. 
with their wings spread above it, they will protect it. Place inside the ark the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant which I give to you. Then put the atonement cover on top of the ark. I will meet you, I will meet with you there and talk to you from above the atonement cover between the gold cherubim that hover over the ark of the covenant. From there I will give you my commands for the people of Israel. Israel. Okay. Man, this is the most holy, singular object in Jewish history. The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, as we just described, was made out of acacia wood, and it was covered inside and out with pure gold. When the term is used, pure gold, in the Hebrew it means uncontaminated, without impurities. The Septuagint, which is a Greek rendering of the Old Testament, renders this term with the word katharos, which means dirt-free. Dirt-free. So right off the bat, I want you to see Jesus in the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. You say, well, how do you see that, Trent? Well, what is it made out of? It's made out of acacia wood. Acacia wood, uh, uh, Wes, is almost an indestructible wood. But the thing about it is not... It's not just that it's in, almost indestructible. I mean, it's literally like pressure-treated lumber by nature. Near enough, so dense, nearly indestructible. But it was very common. Everyone had access to acacia wood. It was a very common wood in that region. So it's made out of acacia wood. But then it's covered inside and out flawlessly with pure gold. And you say, okay, Trent, where's Jesus in that? We see in this beautiful illustration the very humanity of God represented in Jesus in the acacia wood. Common, just another stick of wood. The nature of man, right? But that same nature of man, unlike every other article, was covered inside and out with pure gold. It is this beautiful image of the God-man, his humanity and his divinity merging into one thing, coexisting. And in that place is where the presence of God would move forth in the purpose and the mission of God. You see what I'm talking about? It is a beautiful... Listen, I can't go into everything. I can only touch a few things as we gather ourselves, and we move through this regarding the ark. Let me, let me read this to you. In John chapter 1, verse 14, because we know the intentions of God about building the tabernacle, right? The intentions of God was to be amongst his people. We know this. We know this, right? John chapter 1, verse 14, we've read this. This is no shocker. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us, meaning pitched his tent. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, listen, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Literally residing with men. And there in the most holy of holies, in the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of Almighty God resided. And they could only enter in to the uh, Holy of Holies one time a year. 
once a year and it was to make atonement for the entire nation. What was being done daily on the other side was individual sins were being reckoned with. So we have God administering his grace over the individual and over the collective corporate body or nation of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant. But I do want to say this to you regarding the Ark of the Covenant. Without the glory of God, the Ark of the Covenant, and this may offend you, there's been a thousand replicas of it made, is just acacia wood and gold. There are replicas of the Ark of the Covenant that are made precisely as the description has been made, but are not the Ark of the Covenant of God. They are simply a box made of acacia wood covered with gold. And without the glory of God, it is merely a box. But when the glory of God resides within the ark, in the presence of the ark, then it becomes something completely different. I would say this to you as my brothers and sisters to Jesus, apart from the glory of God in our lives, we're just some acacia wood. We're just common. We're regular. You can find us. Buy one, get one free kind of thing. Man, we're everywhere. But when the glory of God fills our lives, then you and I, might I say, become an ark of the covenant of God, carrying the very presence of God every place we go without acacia wood poles that can be touched and handled and trusted to administer the gospel in a world that is broken. But this isn't the last time God creates an ark. It's not the last time. It happens again. You know this, right? It's not the last time he makes an ark out of a box. Luke chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 says this. Let's have a little Christmas in July. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Fatne, the Greek word for manger. You know what it means, Michael? It's a feeding box. But once that child was placed in that feeding box, and the glory of God, and that's what the scripture said when it prophesied about the Messiah, he was the mighty God placed in a mere box. And the shepherds came and they worshipped him as such. But what separated the ark from the holy place was this curtain. And in the temple, there was also another curtain, the curtain of life that separated the ark from the rest of the temple. And when Jesus died, you know what the scripture says? Because Jesus wants us with him, right? 
He wants he he is here to draw us to the Father. Make no mistake about that. Make no mistake about that. You know what the scripture says in Matthew 25, 50 and 51? It says, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That's not just what it says. From the top to the bottom. You know what the implication is? <laughs> the tearing of the temple curtain, the curtain of life started in heaven. God. <laughs> when Jesus died, God reaches up there. And his son, he, he rips this thing apart. He says, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. There is something even more significant about the curtain of life. Those uh, rabbinical traditions that I talked to you about, talked to you about, give names to the other curtains, also, and Jesus referenced them. Gave names to the other curtains. You know what those curtains were referenced, and every Jew knew this. He referred to himself as the gate. It was called the curtain of the way. You know what the second curtain was called? The curtain of truth. I've already told you what the third curtain is called. Life. So in John, on the verge of being crucified, in John chapter 14, Jesus says this to his disciples. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will return. He said, I'll, I'll receive you unto myself, that where I am you may be also. He said, if it were not so, I would have told you. He said, but I, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And you know what Thomas said? Thomas looks at Jesus and he says, hey, 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 rabbi, hey, teacher, we neither know the way or the place and you know what Jesus says to them and what they would understand? He said, I am the way. <laughs> I am the truth. And I am the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. That's the reason when he dies, the curtain veil is rent in two from heaven. They knew what he was saying. He was the access to the Father. He in himself represent, represented everything that the tabernacle represented. He was the gate. He was the curtains. He was the access point. And the reality today for you and me as pursuers of God is to understand there is no other way to God. Right? But he's made this possible, right? He died on a cross, you see. He suffered, he was hammered out of one piece because he was the light of the world. Because he wanted to feed us, to draw us closer to God through prayer, and ultimately to give us grand access to the Father. 
And so what's left for you and me is in light of all these things that are true, according to the scripture, is what then do we do with this man Jesus? What do we do with Jesus? Who looked at Thomas, who said, I don't know the way or the place. And listen, man, you've got to give me some liberty because I think he does this to me, Brandon. I could almost imagine, Jay, and I don't want to read too much into it, but I understand the intimacy of the moment. And I felt like he's done this to me before. Could you see Jesus grabbing Thomas's face and just make sure Thomas sees him? Oh, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, the life. Come. Come, right, right. So you and I are going to wrestle with these things. But we have to make a decision with them. These are, these are negotiable factors in the gospel. This is laid before us. So what we're going to do this morning, I'm going to ask Danny, I'm going to ask Brandon if they've come forward. Ben, we're going to have communion. Right? We're going to do communion. And I'm just going to ask you guys, as you, as you come and the elements are presented, that you consider your own position, your own posture, your own relationship with God, how you've responded to God, how you've responded to God in Christ Jesus. Okay? You with me? You tracking with me? This is your moment, your time. Your time. And you say, hey, man, I'm, I'm just a visitor. But I sure would like to take communion this morning. Because I'm in Jesus. Listen, if you are following a lover of Jesus, this is as much for you as it is for me. I care not where you come from. It doesn't make any difference. This is for you. And when you come up here, you're going to get two cups. And the top cup will be the juice, and the bottom cup connected to it will be the bread. And what we're going to do is we're going to start on the outside. You guys know this. On the outside to the back, and then from the front, we're going to work around. We're going to come down. I would ask you to take the elements, return to your seat. We're going to prayer. We're going to pray. We're going to take communion together as a body of Christ. And then we're going to be dismissed. But in that process, the liberty is yours to respond to God this morning, right? We're not cutting you off. We're not going to... It's your opportunity. So Father, in Jesus' name, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning. As Lord, as we've searched the scripture just to get an inkling of your love for us and to understand it and to open the door to deeper understanding. So Father, I bless my brothers and sisters. Speak to them, and oh God, what I know the scripture teaches us is that you have made yourself available to hear from us. And for that we thank you. In Jesus' name. So if you guys on the outside would just...